0: Welcome to BookSmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether it's self
1: help, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Em. And I'm Melissa. And this week, we're reading Atomic Habits An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones by James Clear.
0: No matter your goals, Atomic Habits offers a proven framework to help you make little improvements every day. James Clear is one of the world's leading experts on habit formation, and in this New York Times bestseller, he reveals practical strategies that will teach you exactly how to form good habits, break bad ones, and master the tiny behaviors that lead to remarkable results. If you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you, the problem is your system. Bad habits repeat themselves again and again, not because you don't want to change, but because you have the wrong system for change. You do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. Here, you'll get a proven system that can take you to new heights, and atomic habits will give you the tools and strategies you need to transform your habits and your life. So Melissa, why did we read this book?
1: Okay, I've been on James Clare's newsletter for, I think, at least three years, which is saying a lot because I'm a chronic unsubscriber. I love to clear the inbox. I've always really enjoyed his conversational writing style, and he consistently shares interesting studies or frameworks that I valued. But despite my love for James, I still hesitated on buying this book. I've read habits books before, like The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, or Better Than Before by our queen, Gretchen Rubin. So <laughs> I thought, like, do I really need another habits book? But then I succumbed to the internet pressure, and everyone was raving about this book. And I'm so glad that I did because I freaking love this book, <laughs> and it's probably my favorite book on habits to date. And I felt really empowered the whole time I was reading, which is frankly the opposite of how I
0: expected to feel. But M, how about you? Same. So I did not expect to love this book as much as I did. But before all that, I am already very committed to finding new ways to improve my life, my health, my happiness, my overall enjoyment of the day-to-day activities that make up a good life for me. And I'm always up for a read that promises to help me do that or that will help me tackle bad habits that get in the way of me living my best life. Plus, I will organize anything. And habits seem like a way to organize my life. And I loved that. I love that about you.
1: (laughs) Well, I think with that, let's open the book and get started.
0: All right. So let's start with the fundamentals. So we're going to talk about first what a habit is. And James Clear defines a habit as a routine or behavior that is performed regularly and often automatically automatically. Small but consistent habits can lead to results that were unimaginable when you first start. And that's the atomic portion. Changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you're willing to stick to them for years. I think that's the most important part
1: of atomic habits versus just regular habits. It's this focus on really small changes that compound over time versus really big, life-altering, uproot-your-life
0: kinds of habits you might want to start. Right. And let's this is for better or worse too, right? Bad habits and good habits. The quality of our lives really depend on the quality of our habits. Something that James says that really had an impact on me is he mentions that it's
1: only when looking back two, five, or maybe 10 years later that the value of good habits and the cost of bad ones becomes strikingly apparent. So time is a really big factor in habits. And I don't know if I had considered that before, that it's not about 21 days to build a new habit, and you're done. But rather imagining a lifetime over years and imagining how really tiny changes will create bigger
0: changes over time. Right. We so often fixate on what you were saying before about this big thing we have to do, but somebody doesn't write a book by quitting their job and getting it all done in three months. I guess some people do that. Mm -hmm. But often it is done by waking up every morning and just setting aside an hour and doing that day in and day out. Right. And how many of us know somebody
1: who – tried to start a new diet, and really stuck to it for 30 days and then went back to exactly what they were doing before. Even though they successfully did stick to that habit, unless it's a lifelong change, it's going to end up being meaningless in the long run. Something that I really liked about this phrase, this compounding interest, is that it's not additive. In other words, it's not that you read a book and that's great, you read two books, now you've read two books. It's also the fact that every book you read not only teaches you something new, But it also introduces new ways for you to think about old ideas from the past. So it's not as easy as just counting things up. It really does build and compound over time,
0: which I loved. Yeah. There's also some really cool math, which I never thought I would say. No, I love math. (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) So so James Clear figured out that – and this is potentially just math that anybody could do. I don't know. He says, if you can get 1% better each day for one year, you'll end up 37 times better by the time you're done. And then the reverse is also true. 1% worse each day puts you at zero level at the end of that year. So that's how compounding works both positively and negatively. That's just in the course of one year? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. 37 times better. Which I think is such
1: an interesting perspective because 1% changes every day feel like nothing. Yeah. Almost so insignificant that it's easy to pass them up. I know for me at least, it's really tough to change something in the moment in both directions. Like it makes it hard to justify – not eating more ice cream because I can't feel the bad impact immediately, or not going to the gym. Even if you go, you don't immediately feel healthier. Mm -hmm. So it's really tough for me at least in the moment to make these 1% improvements because I'm not seeing that 37 times reward.
0: Yeah, we have to keep that math in mind because that's really the premise of this book, right? That breakthrough moments, that big reward, those outcomes we really want happen after the result of many, many previous actions. So how do we get to that breakthrough moment? What? How do we put our eyes on the prize? And I love what James Clear said in this book about you need to forget about the goal. You need to forget about that breakthrough moment. You actually need to focus on your systems instead. This was maybe the biggest aha for this book
1: compared to other habits books that I've read where he's really thinking about the system And he actually pointed out three problems with focusing on the goal instead of the system that really clicked for me. So problem number one is that winners and losers have the same goal. So for example, every Olympian wants to win gold. But in order to do that, the system or the habits that they're each employing are much different from each other. And if they only focused on winning gold, they probably wouldn't be going to their workouts every day or doing all of those tiny things that they need to do to actually achieve their outcome.
0: Problem number two is that achieving a goal is only a momentary change. And so when you solve problems on the results level, you solve them only temporarily. And a great example of that is if you want to get in shape, you might sign up to train for a marathon, but then when you finish that marathon, if you finish it, you've hit your goal, and so you don't really have a reason to keep going because you've already achieved that goal. But what you really want is to become a runner. And so you need to have a daily practice, not a goal. And that brings us nicely into problem number three, which is that goals restrict your
1: happiness. It's almost like you've implied that once you hit that goal, then you'll be happy. But the problem with that goals first mentality is that you're continually putting off happiness until the next milestone. So with the marathoner, It's like you'll only be happy when you finish the marathon, if you finish the marathon. But you're not spending most of your time at the finish line. Most of the time is being spent practicing running and getting up and doing it every day. So you need to find a way to flip the script on that and enjoy the process
0: and not just the one second outcome. As someone who ran a 5K for the first time last year, I can attest to the fact that just because I finished the 5K doesn't mean that I'm a runner now. Oh my gosh, it's funny. (laughs) I've also only run one 5K. I just wanted to check the box, but I have
1: accepted my identity as a non-runner, which we'll get into shortly, (laughs) although I have found other ways to exercise my desire to be a healthy person. Same. We'll get into that for both of us. Exactly. Before we talk about how habits shape our identity, I wanted to offer this quote from the book where James says, just as atoms are the building blocks of molecules, atomic habits are the building blocks of remarkable results. They are both small and mighty. This is the meaning of the phrase atomic habits, a regular practice or routine that is not only small and easy to do, but also the source of incredible power a component of the system of compound growth.
0: I love it. Let's build small but mighty habits. Small but mighty, just like us and our (laughs) little podcast.
1: (laughs) All right, let's talk about how our habits shape our identity. This is another section that I thought really set this book apart from other habits books that I've read.
0: One of the things i love that james said in this chapter was that changing habits is hard because we do two things wrong first we try to change the wrong thing into the wrong way and he broke this down into the example of an onion if you think about an onion there are three levels of change so there are three layers to that onion and the outermost layer is outcomes so outcome change is when we're focused on the outcome losing weight writing a book Underneath that layer is the layer of process change, and so that's when we're changing habits and systems, for example, getting up early to write a book or meal planning in order to achieve those outcomes. But at the center of the onion is identity change, and this is where changing your beliefs and your worldview, your self-image, your judgments about yourself and others help you to work outward to both the process and the outcomes that you want to achieve. Let's give an example of the difference by using somebody who's trying to quit
1: smoking. Somebody at the process layer might say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. But somebody at the identity layer of change would say, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. They've shifted it to be something about who they are
0: instead of just an action they're trying not to do. Right, I love that idea that behind every system of actions is a system of beliefs. So when you believe you're not a smoker, all of your actions can line up in service of that outcome and that belief. I have a funny example for this one. So I considered myself at an identity level a bad plant mom. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And this is something I've struggled with for several years now. And so the outcome that I want here is that, like, I want my plants to be healthy, but I can't change it because I have this belief that I'm a bad plant mom, that Mm I can't get it together, I never remember... My plants annoy me because they're wilting, so I don't want to water them. Like, it is a, it's sad. It's really sad. And so this book, like, this was my first aha moment. It made me realize that I don't want my identity to be a bad plant mom. I want to be a good plant mom. And so as soon as, like, that fell into place with me, I realized, okay, great. This is my identity now. How can I change both my process to achieve the outcomes that I want? I love that you just want to give your plant kids a good life. I do. I really do. And now, thanks to this book, I am watering them every Sunday and Wednesday, and they look great, and I am such a good plant mom. You are. Your identity has shifted
1: already. I love it. (laughs) Another way to think about this is that improvements are only temporary until they become part of who you are. So the goal isn't to read one book. Your goal is to become a reader. It's not to learn an instrument, but to become a musician. And so on the flip side, like Em was talking about, you have certain stories maybe you've told yourself for years about who you are not. Like, I'm not a morning person. I'm always late. I'm not good with tech. I'm a bad plant mom. We have both stories that are the positive and the negative, not not good or bad, but just affirmative or non-affirming ways that we see ourselves.
0: And they really are tied to the habits. Right. Right. They influence the actions that we take that push us in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. I like that James said, first, just decide the type of person you want to be, and two, start to prove it to yourself with small wins.
1: Those small wins I think are so important. Like you said about your plants, you're taking these small actions. You're building up a database of proof that M is a great plant mom because you (laughs) see yourself taking really small actions to build that identity. I have another internet quote that I love. I don't know who to attribute this to, but this came up for me when I was trying to be healthy. That was an identity that I wanted to have. And especially right after college years ago, I think it's safe to say college is not the healthiest time Mm. of life for many of us, but I wanted to change things. And so as I was looking into how I could do new things in my fitness routine or eat in healthier ways, also inspired by my chintzy New York budget. um, But this quote said, One salad won't make you healthy, just like one hamburger won't make you fat. But what was happening in my life is that I was choosing salads or healthy meals pretty frequently. So even when I chose to have a burger or to eat dessert, it didn't dull the identity that I had built Mm -hmm. as a healthy person. In my mind, I was just thinking, oh, I'm a healthy person, and right now I'm just enjoying a burger, but tomorrow I'll go back to being healthy. So the overwhelming data supported my belief that I
0: was a healthy eater, even if I divulged from that now and again. I love that. That sort of hits home what James says about the more pride you have in your identity, the more motivated you will be to try to maintain it. This is where we move into the nitty gritty. What makes up a habit and how do we approach building habits or stopping bad ones? James says that any habit can be broken down into a feedback loop in our brains that involve four steps. Cue, craving, response, and reward. And a way to think about this is The cue is about noticing the reward, the craving is about wanting it, and the response is about obtaining it. Something that I like about how James sets up the habit loop
1: that I hadn't seen before is that he introduces the craving, the feeling. So often I've seen cue, response, reward. But what I like about this is now that there's a clear problem phase where something happens in your environment that triggers a feeling, a craving, and then the solution phase has a clear action that triggers another feeling, the reward. So to me, this framework made a lot of sense. And to help out listeners, here's an example. Let's say that the cue is that your phone buzzes. You know what that means already listening, right? The craving is that you want to know what the message says or what's happening on your phone or what cool meme your sister sent you. Your response is then to grab the phone so that you can read the text. And then your reward is that you satisfied the craving to read the message and see the hilarious dog meme from my sisters. And now what you've really done is you've associated grabbing your phone with the phone buzzing. So again, the cue was the buzz and the response was that you grabbed it. And I often don't think about picking up my phone. It just kind of happens on autopilot. And I think it's because I've associated it with good feelings, whether it's a text from my sister or maybe a dopamine hit from Instagram or lack of dopamine from Instagram, which we'll talk (laughs) about later. But in any case, you're avoiding doing something else. Maybe you're relieving stress. Maybe you want to feel good. There's a definite cue, craving, response, reward, habit loop just by picking up a phone.
0: Yeah. I think we can all really relate to this one. That craving can feel so strong when you see a notification, and I think it's why our devices or have built in those notifications in such an aggressive way because it's reinforcing our habits to stay engaged on those apps and our emails, and we must overcome, so habits. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Later on when we talk about cravings, we'll really get into the
1: deep troubles of Instagram, Mm. so stay tuned. But the crux of the book comes down to James's four laws of behavior change. We're going to go through each one chapter by chapter. But each law applies to one phase of the habit loop. So first up is make the cue obvious. Second is make the craving attractive. Third, make the response
0: easy. And fourth, make the reward satisfying. And so that's for good habits, right? We want to make them obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying. And so the inverse is also true when we're trying to change bad habits. We want to make the cue invisible we wanna make the craving unattractive, we wanna make the response difficult, and we wanna make the reward unsatisfying.
1: Absolutely, and with that, I think let's jump right into rule number one, make it obvious. I think the first step to habit change is awareness. So this chapter leads off with a simple exercise that you can use to become more aware of your habits. He invites you to list out your daily habits. Obvious as they sound, waking up, turning off your alarm, checking the phone, all of these are habits that you do. We'll recap this at the end, but once you have that list, the goal is to mark each one as good, bad, or neutral. And these will be personal choices. There's not necessarily one behavior that's always good or bad. It'll just depend on your ultimate goal. But what you can ask is, does this behavior help me become the type of person I wish to be? You don't have to change anything yet. Right now, we're just assessing the situation.
0: And this is where I had another huge aha moment for me. So I listed all of my daily habits and I have a fairly intense morning routine. So there Mm -hmm. are a lot of habits in this list. I noticed two bad habits at the three bad habits at the very beginning of my day, like within minutes of waking up. And the first was that my alarm goes off. That's neutral, Mm -hmm. right? Secondly, I often hit snooze on the alarm. So that's a bad habit. Thirdly, when I eventually do wake up, I tend to lie there and ruminate and just let my brain think about like what I have to do. And it just defaults to negative. So oh no! it's just not a good place to start my day. I'm sure and then, listeners relate to that though. Yeah. <laughs> and then fourthly, I look at my texts next. So I start my day ruminating and sort of simmering in what other people are saying or want from me. And that's not where I wanted to start my day. I felt like all three of those things were bad habits that I wanted to change immediately in the first minutes of my day. How many people do exactly that, though?
1: I know I'm guilty of that often. We'll come back to this later, but something that I started doing is charging my phone across the room. Mm. So I wanted to make it not obvious. That's the rule we're talking about. I wanted to instead make it a bit more invisible. And that's a way that I'm hoping to try to break this bad habit of the endless scroll and the early morning just ruminating, as you talked about. Right. The bleary-eyed rumination. Oh, God, what a phrase. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously we've done the exercise, you've listed out all of your habits. And the way to get past that is that you need an implementation plan. So there are plenty of studies in the book where the results were significant. You can't just say, I want to exercise. You have to say exactly where, when, how often, and for what duration you will exercise. So in other words, when situation X arises, I will perform response Y.
0: So M, what are you doing about your morning routine? Okay, so James Clear says that the two most common cues are time and location for when to change those habits. And so my obvious cue is my alarm goes off. My location is my bed. (laughs) (laughs) And the first thing that I started doing is not hitting snooze. I just said, this is... The new rule is I'm not going to hit snooze, so I don't hit snooze anymore. Bold. I know. And it, it's working. <laughs> really? It's working. If I have a really bad night's sleep because I work from home for myself, sometimes I will change my alarm, but I do not hit snooze.
1: Ooh, that's interesting. So it's not that you've said, I always have to wake up at a certain time. You've just eliminated the snooze action, but given yourself the freedom to
0: say, I do need to sleep in an hour. Let me change the time yes. that the alarm will go off. Yes. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So negative habit of hitting the snooze is changed to a positive habit of waking up, just turning off the alarm. Next, instead of lying there and ruminating, I lie there and think of three positive things that I'm looking forward to in my day. And that has changed so much for me. Finally, my bad habit used to be looking at text first thing in the morning, and I have stopped that altogether until after I have made my tea and journaled. So I don't look at text sometimes for another 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how long I need to write. That must make such a difference in your morning. And
1: it sounds like a nice segue into the next concept, which is habit stacking. And I know that you use this all the time. So do you want to talk a little bit about what that means?
0: Yeah. Habit stacking is my new way of life. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get a hashtag on that? (laughs) Wait, what would
1: it be? habit
0: stacking way of life. We're going to have to acronym it. We'll come back to it. We'll workshop that. (laughs) Okay. So habit stacking is a strategy to pair a new habit with a current habit. For example, on top of a habit or in between existing habits, you often decide what you're going to do next based on what you just finished doing. That's just plain human behavior. So the formula that you're taking advantage of here is after current habit, I will the new habit. So for me, it's after I wake up, I will turn on the light, not hit the snooze button. After I turn on the light, I will say three positive things
1: about my day. I do the same thing at night. So a few years ago, I really wanted to get into a better flossing habit. So this sounds really obvious because most people do these things in this order or their own order, but after I brush my teeth, I floss. Actually, to make it even tinier, after I brush my teeth, I pick up my flossing trident. And then after I floss, I do mouthwash. And it's not because I have particular feelings about the order or feel that my day will be ruined if I don't do it in the order, but it's because the cues build on each other. So it's how I actively built up just the reminder to stack those habits
0: and to just almost automatically now do them one after another. Plus, you get to say that your identity is somebody who's great at flossing with a flossing trident. That just makes me think of King Trident (laughs) and the Little Mermaid wielding his trident. Oh, my God. I'm going to add that to my dating profile. (laughs)
1: Great at flossing. (laughs) Line up, boys. All right. (laughs) Another thing I thought was worth mentioning is that he says habits like read more or eat better are worthy causes, but the goals don't provide instruction on how or when to act. So you need to be more specific. If you want to become a reader – When will you read? For how long? You could even get more specific and say, where in your house are you going to read? Do you have a chair that you love? And maybe in the mornings you're going to read for an hour in the chair? Or maybe when you make your bed in the morning, you'll put a book there for you to find it at night. Just getting really, really specific
0: about the actions you're going to take. Right. Cues should be highly specific and immediately actionable. And you should also consider where you're most likely to be successful with the same frequency. So, for example, if it's something you need to do every day, don't stack it on something that only happens on Mondays. Well said. That segues nicely into the next concept, where he says motivation is
1: overrated, environment often matters more. Often our environments make it really easy to not do certain things because we don't have a cue. For example, if you want to play guitar more, but your guitar lives in the closet, you're never going to get that visual cue to see it. Same thing if your bookshelf is hidden in a guest room, or if your meds are hidden in a drawer. So to make things more obvious, you need to make it more
0: visible. I love this, that you don't have to be the victim of your environment, you can be the architect of it. So you can sprinkle triggers around your home. So for example, I've mentioned that I journal every morning, so now I just leave my journal on the ottoman by my couch. I want to take my vitamins every day, so I put them right in front of the plates that I always use at lunchtime. Perfect.
1: I wanted to learn to drink more water a few years ago, so now I keep a massive 32-ounce water bottle on my desk at work, and it's on autopilot that I'm always going through water. But I've noticed sometimes on the weekend when I'm just around my apartment or if I don't have a water bottle nearby, I'm not drinking water because my cue is now invisible to me. So it really does make a difference. Before we move on, every law can be flipped. So if you wanna build a good habit, you wanna make it obvious. But if you wanna cut bad habits off at the source, you wanna reduce your exposure to the cue. You wanna make it invisible. I decided to charge my phone in the kitchen overnight so that I can't wake up and pick it up so easily and just endlessly scroll in the mornings.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I love what James said that people with more quote-unquote self-control spend less time in tempting situations. It's not really about their ability to self-control and ignore the cue. It's that they don't put themselves in those situations. It's easier to avoid those than to resist them. Earlier, I mentioned that this book
1: made me feel empowered. And I think a big reason why is that we're often taught that you should just buck up and have more self-control and just resist that last piece of chocolate cake and all of this stuff. But the way that James frames these different laws is that it's really not about self-control. You have to change your environment, make the cue invisible. That's much better in terms of how you spend your energy than it would be for you to just try to magically summon this self-control thing.
0: Right. It makes us feel more powerful, even though we're spending less energy. Absolutely. So section two is the second law of behavior change, which is to make it attractive. And this is the idea that it's the anticipation of the reward that gets us to take action. And so we want to make that attractive. What I loved is that he points out
1: that dopamine is released not only when you experience pleasure, but also, like you said, in the anticipation of it. So gambling addicts have a dopamine spike right before they place a bet. Whenever you predict that that opportunity is gonna be rewarding, your levels of dopamine go up, and when dopamine goes up, so does your motivation to act.
0: Yeah, I love that example about gambling addicts experiencing it before they place the bet, not when they win. And it's also interesting to think about that every behavior associated with being highly habit-forming Bad habit forming, drugs, smoking, junk food, checking social media, they're all associated with higher levels of dopamine. Which is fascinating. I had never thought about that before. Yeah.
1: Also in this chapter, he talks about temptation bundling. So earlier we mentioned habit stacking, and this is a similar concept where you want to combine something you want to do with something you actually desire. So as an example, after you clear your inbox, you get to watch The Great British Bake Off on Mm. Netflix. (laughs) The hope is that in time, you'll learn that clearing your inbox has a positive association because now you're anticipating the reward of Netflix and Mary Berry and all of the delights of the Great British Bake Off. (laughs) And so hopefully in time, those two things will be associated and you will feel positively about
0: your inbox clearing, not just about Netflix. Right. An example that I've been using in my daily life is that So I'm using the formula here of bundling habit stacking, the habits that I already have with the temptation of the habit that I want to do. So the formula there is after current habit, I will do the habit I need. And then after doing the habit I need, I will get to do the habit that I want. And so for me in my morning routine, when it comes to when I get to look at my texts, it means that after journaling, that's my current habit. I will say affirmations for the day. That's the new habit that I want to add into my day. So that's the habit I need. And then after I do my affirmations, I get to look at my texts. Ooh, sneaky. Keeps me moving forward. And those texts are (laughs) such a fun reward. And because I have that fun reward coming, the craving to do my affirmations, it's sort of built in there. It's all attractive because it's in that delicious bundle. I think that's really smart. It
1: makes sense to put the thing that you want at the end of the road so that you can encourage yourself to take on
0: some newer actions or habits that you want to build in between. One that I think is sort of beyond my reach at this point, but I want to build toward it is after I pull out my phone and get the craving to check Instagram, I want to add in there do five push push-ups. Ooh. I know. And M- you are savage. <laughs> I You're going to be say, so
1: fit. I'm not doing it yet. <laughs> I'd like to do it. <laughs> I can't wait to check in and see how this goes with you in a future episode. You'll just bench press me and say, how do you think it's going? <laughs> what do you think now? <laughs> oh, my God. That's great. I think it's interesting. For Instagram, I've done the opposite where I've removed a cue. Yeah. So I have turned off all notifications. Yeah but I think that the craving is still there. And something positive that I could do in the future is exactly what you're doing with temptation bundling. What can I do before I check Instagram? I do think that something really relevant to this is about cravings themselves. A craving, he says, is just a specific manifestation of a deeper underlying motive. Your brain did not evolve with a desire to smoke cigarettes or to check Instagram or to play video games. At a deep level, you simply want to reduce uncertainty and relieve anxiety to win social acceptance and approval or to achieve status. This was mind-blowing for me because I know that it's not my deepest desire to check Instagram, but I don't think that I had associated it with relieving anxiety. Mm. It's such an easy thing to do to scroll through and it takes me away from whatever thing I'm probably avoiding. And so it's become a really
0: easy, unfortunately, opt-out for me. And Mm -hmm. it does release dopamine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That awareness is so powerful. I think that sort of circles back to that habit tracker at the very beginning of the process of figuring out what your habits are, is just starting to become aware of what you're doing. And then the next level of that is figuring out why. Exactly. He says
1: about the social media concept, it's not that you want a potato chip. It's not that you want a cigarette or a bunch of likes. What you really want is to feel different. That's what you're seeking in the next phases that we'll talk about, the response and the reward. You want to feel different from the way that you feel now. That's why you feel a craving. It's almost this gap between how you want to feel and what you currently do feel. And this whole section was just like, wow, wow, wow. Like I was just reeling in my mind. I was ironically Instagramming screenshots of this quote (laughs) so that other people could experience this with me. But I was really mind blown by this concept that – I am filling a void yeah. the Instagram response and reward is a reaction to probably some feeling of anxiety right, or boredom, honestly. It might not be that I'm anxious. It could just be that I have nothing to do with my time and the cue is that, oh, I have a couple of minutes. Let me reward myself by picking up my phone.
0: Yeah. And if it is a more negative connotation, then you get to decide what habits you want to build that fulfill that in a positive way. Before we move into
1: number three, make it easy,
0: we're going to take a quick break. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com/booksmart and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com/booksmart to get started today. Why Audible?
1: Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers.
0: Of course, we recommend you use your free trial to check out Atomic Habits, but you can choose any book you'd like. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash booksmart for your free audiobook.
1: Now that we're back, it's on to number three, make it easy. A big part of this chapter focuses on the question many of you might have, which is how long does it take to build a new habit? It's not really about time, which is a little unsatisfying, but rather it's about frequency. So the way that I like to think about this is that there's nothing magical about the way that time is passing. It's about reps. So he says the most effective form of learning is practice,
0: not just planning. And M, do you want to get a little more into that? Yeah, that's, that's key to focus on practice, not planning, because I think it's so easy for us to focus on the planning portion. It can feel like we're making very productive headway by strategizing and learning and researching. And what we're not doing actually is practicing the behavior, the action that puts us in motion to build the habit. And you and I are both planners. Oh, yeah. I would say we are both action takers, like hello, yeah. look at us recording right yeah. now.
1: But. It's tough because, like you said, planning does feel like an action. It feels so good. It feels so good to plan, but what we want to challenge you to do instead is to practice, to actually do. So instead of building the tracker, instead of getting your bullet journal, instead of getting your planner, instead play the instrument, read the book,
0: mark something off, take the action, and then do it again and again. A way that I think is really fun to illustrate this concept is um, neuropsychologist Donald Hebb. He created Hebb's Law in 1949 when he discovered that neurons that fire together wire together. Oh, my God. Adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Our brains want these habits to happen. We want to be practicing because when neurons that fire together, they wire together. And so when we put in those reps, that's the most critical step to encode that new habit. I love that. I think it's both memorable and a good reminder that it's all about
1: just continuing to do something. Yep. It's not about doing it once. That's a big theme of the book. You got to do it again and again. Yep. He also mentioned something called the law of least effort. So if you look at any behavior that fills up a lot of your life, you'll see that you can probably do it with very low levels of motivation. Scrolling on your phone, checking your email, watching TV. They take up so much of our time because you can do it with almost no effort at all. They are to quote him, remarkably convenient. (laughs) And as I was prepping for this episode, I was literally withholding from turning on the TV because I could tell I was just itching to do it because it was the easier choice, not because I needed to really watch anything urgently. But then I used temptation bundling (laughs) to get me through prepping for this episode where after I wrote out my notes, then I got to watch The Great British Bake Off.
0: It's I so did, delightful. I <laughs> did the same thing, not with <laughs> GBBO. <but laughs> Everyone should watch. And I think it's worth pointing out here that, again, we're humans. We do this. This is okay. We just naturally gravitate toward actions of least effort. We want to conserve energy. It's just part of how we work. And we're all a little lazy. It's, that's okay. It's just the key is to figure out how to leverage who we are as humans to create habits that work for us. Exactly. And – In
1: a future episode, upcoming episode five, we'll talk more about reframing. But a way that I would reframe laziness is just efficiency. We are all very efficient. And something that James mentions in this chapter is that you can stop procrastinating by using something called the two-minute rule. So speaking of efficiency, I think it's really easy to look at big habits like I want to do 30 minutes of yoga or I want to read before bed each night. And you can imagine those each take a bit of time. Instead, what he's challenging us to do is to break down those new habits into something you can do in less than two minutes. So it's not about doing 30 minutes of yoga, it's take out my yoga mat. It's not read before bed each night, it's read one page. You want to make it as easy as possible to start, and then the truth is you'll often continue.
0: Right. I love that. He called that the gateway habit, Mm. so that is what you're doing in those two minutes. To make the next habit, which may be a bit challenging, like eventually you want to go for a run, but your gateway habit is just tying your shoes. Or maybe it's, like you said, just reading one page. And it may seem insignificant, but if you remember
1: back earlier, we mentioned we're building up an identity. Even these little actions really provide data to reinforce that identity you want to build. So even if you just show up at the gym five days in a row, even if it's just for two minutes, You are casting votes towards that new identity as somebody who goes to the gym and doesn't skip. So that'll help in the future because you're reinforcing this ongoing identity that you're building.
0: Neurons that fire together wire together. Now your brain knows you go to the gym after work every day. Exactly. He says the truth is a habit must be established before it can be improved.
1: If you can't learn the basic skill of showing up, then you have little hope of mastering the finer details. At first, I wanted to write off this two-minute rule. I was like, screw this. I'm going to go to yoga. But I think he's really onto something because you wouldn't just dive in to running a marathon. You Mm -hmm. would start with smaller runs. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just breaking down that concept even more. What is the smallest possible building block you can start with and then going from there?
0: I really like that. It also relates to the concept of creating an environment where doing the right thing is as easy as possible. So that also relates to efficiency too. So we're so efficiently combining all of these things into one to make it easy. So for me, the two-minute habit of putting on my workout clothes in the morning helps me to know I'm going to go to the gym later today. Or that two minutes of filling up a pitcher of water and putting it on my desk helps me drink water all day. Even
1: as you're describing it now, those also remind me of cues, like filling up your Mm -hmm. pitcher of water. That's a cue that later on you're going to be drinking water and it's, again, reinforcing the identity. It's all just really adding up and compounding throughout this book, The Lessons. Before we get into the last rule, we always have to invert. So if you want to make good habits inevitable, you want to make bad habits impossible. So you do have to do a bit of advanced planning, but the goal is to make bad habits much harder. Hide stuff, use technology to help you, but you want to make it very, very difficult for you to perform a bad habit.
0: Okay, so an example from the book that I freaking love is – in 1830, Victor Hugo had 18 months to write a new book, and he had squandered a year of it, entertaining, lollygagging around, and then he realized he had six more months to hit this book deadline. And so what he did to make it difficult to you know, squander more time mm-hmm. was that he collected all of his clothes, and he asked his assistant to lock them away until he had <laughs> finished his book. And he had nothing to wear but a large shawl. I think this is so funny. <laughs> I love picturing Victor Hugo wrapped in this shawl for six for months. For six months. <laughs> and The Hunchback of Notre Dame was published two weeks early.
1: Right. So it you got worked. there.
0: <laughs> Everyone should write in shawls. <laughs> to, I can't wait till I have an assistant who takes away all of my clothes and forces me to write books.
1: Yeah. That really does speak to the invert, right? You're making it impossible. Yeah. His clothing, so far away. He had no access to unlock it. And truly, he was then
0: able to give himself the space to write. He had no other choice. So fabulous. So it's a really huge example of what James calls commitment devices, which is a choice in the present to lock in better behavior in the future. And some really simple examples of that are if I want to go to a yoga class tonight, I schedule it ahead of time. So I just commit. To that action in the future. An example from the book that I thought was also really cool was a family cut off their internet um, by timer at 10 p.m. every night so no one could just waste time on the internet. That one I thought was really powerful.
1: Just imagine your Wi-Fi shutting off yeah. at 10 p.m. You're forced to make other choices, whether it's reading or journaling before bed, spending a bit of time with your family, going to bed right. at a certain hour even. It's really making it impossible for you to continue
0: on with the bad habit. Number four is to make it satisfying. And Melissa, I know you have an example of this that you really wanna share. I love this. So
1: if you think about the toothpaste that you use to brush your teeth, the mint flavoring or whatever flavor you prefer is a big part of choosing your toothpaste. But the fact is that the mint flavor itself does not make your mouth feel cleaner, but it does give you this clean mouth feel that we now associate with an actual clean feeling. So when people started having mint in their toothpaste, it became more satisfying and enjoyable to brush their teeth. And even when you remove the mint now, people won't do it as much and they'll forget to brush. And James says that his wife actually switched toothpaste brands because she didn't find the minty effect to be satisfying enough in her old brand. So I love this because none of us need the mint In the toothpaste. It's not a core component of clean, but because it's satisfying it helps us build the habit and it makes us feel like we're achieving an outcome.
0: I love that example so much. It's too funny. And when I have accidentally purchased a toothpaste that tastes bad, it's a real bummer. It's not a satisfying experience. Exactly. So the other laws, like make it obvious, make it attractive, and make it easy, all increase the odds that you'll do a habit this time But what's cool about this law, make it satisfying, is that it increases the odds that you'll do it again. I really like that idea that we're coming at it from all angles, making sure we do it now, and making it feel good so that we want to keep doing it. He also
1: mentions that sometimes it's tough to notice habits because they are not doing a thing. Mm. So sometimes you want to avoid spending money or you don't want to drink. But what you can do is to make that avoidance visible. So one example could be maybe naming a savings account and saying that it's for a future vacation and then put money into it every time you don't buy a beer. And that way you can see that there is an actual positive count happening. So it's not just that you're not drinking or not just that you're not
0: spending money, but you're earning money. I like that example too. Another one that he shared was if you want financial freedom, so you're not spending money cuz you're saving for this bigger goal, you're not going out to eat, but instead you can reward yourself with something that feels like free and luxurious cuz what you want is financial freedom. And so the examples he gave or take a bath or take a leisurely walk or luxuriate in a show that you love. Like just experience how great it feels to do things that you love that don't necessarily cost any money. I think this part is so important because in order for a habit to stick,
1: there has to be a reward. You have to ultimately get the feeling that changes the craving, the gap. And so if you're missing this, the habit is probably unlikely to stick.
0: Yeah. We have to be really careful about this because our brains prioritize immediate rewards over delayed rewards. And so when our big goal is like saving money for maybe a trip or just financial freedom, we still need to do things that feel good now in the moment so that we get some kind of immediate reward. Mm -hmm. Another huge aha for me in this chapter was his advice about
1: how to stick with good habits every day. He says, never miss twice. Mm -hmm. In other words, missing once is an accident, but missing twice is the start of a new habit, which was mind-blowing to read. Um, He basically says if he misses one day of something, like working out, he just tries to get back into it as quickly as possible. So maybe he'll even eat an entire pizza, but he'll follow it up with a healthy meal. And he knows he can't be perfect, but he can avoid the second lapse. I mean, I know it sounds kind of obvious, but this was a really new way of thinking because I think in the past I've let perfectionism Mm -hmm. get to me, where if you miss one thing, Mm -hmm. screw it, it's done. But instead of focusing on the first time you break something – If you focus instead on making sure it doesn't stay broken twice, I found that to be really empowering.
0: Yeah. Also the idea related to perfectionism that if you are going to miss a couple times, you feel like you need to just jump right back in with like the best that you can be. And instead, it's better to just do two five-minute workouts two days than it is to skip a couple days and then feel like you need to go all in with this insane workout several days later. It's better to just show up. Exactly. He says, you don't realize how valuable it is
1: to just show up on your bad or busy days. Lost days hurt you more than successful days help you. It really is about just building up that identity. Again, it's gathering data on you being the type of person who blank, who goes to the gym, who goes on a run, who meets up with friends, whatever it is. And one more part of this conversation, he says, too often we fall into an all or nothing cycle with our habits. The problem is not slipping up. The problem is thinking that if you can't do something perfectly, then you shouldn't do it at all. And, and that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, It's like throwing out everything if you can't do it right. 100% all the way. Right. And this was, I think, a really healthy reminder for me
0: and something I know I'm going to continue to think on in the future. Same. Yeah. Another thing I love from this section is that we can use a habit tracker as a simple way to measure and make more satisfying our daily habits by just providing clear evidence of that progress so even if it is the day that we show up for a workout and only do five minutes it still gets the same check mark on the calendar as a workout that was an hour the day before
1: something i've noticed about myself is that there are a ton of habit tracking apps Mm. and i think that those are really great for a lot of people and there is one called done that i like that's free that we can link in the show notes But the most successful tracker I did was something I put up on the wall near my keyboard. I wanted to practice every day for a month, and I had a visual. And something was much more satisfying about seeing it, but also thinking back earlier to the cue, make it obvious, make it visible, I think it helped that I could see it. It's almost like seeing the tracking device was the cue, for me to practice because I wanted the reward of checking something off. It made it more satisfying.
0: Yeah. I totally relate to that having a physical object. For the past several years, I've inadvertently been doing this because I had a small calendar that I call my social calendar. Mm -hmm. And so it is just for me to see when I've had a bit of a gap in seeing friends as an introvert and, you know, things get busy work-wise, I tend to sometimes not make plans and hermit a little bit. And so it started out as just a way for me to see like every other day, I want to be doing something fun at night. And so I had this small calendar that just simply had those plans on it so that I could see visually whether or not I was doing something. And so I've now added to that calendar with An exercise habit that I want to do, a cleaning habit I want to do, watering my plants, things like that. I love that. I think it's so
1: cool that you get the visual because, again, thinking back to tying things to an identity, you have a data log of all the times that you were social. So even when you want to tell yourself, oh, I'm an introvert, maybe I don't see friends or socialize, you actually have proof in the other direction. You can convince yourself that you do see friends because you've got a visual device that shows you. Yeah. Yeah. There's one more part of this chapter that we won't get too far into where he recommends including an accountability partner. He says that that can create an immediate cost to inaction because we care about what others think and obviously we don't want to ditch our friend. And knowing that someone else is watching can be a powerful motivator. But that said, in episode one, the four tendencies, we actually discovered that accountability partners are only helpful for certain people. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go back to episode one at booksmartpodcast.com slash one.
0: Okay, so before we wrap, we're going to go over some of the advanced tactics that James includes in the book. The first one is to think about when genes matter, we're talking about your genetics, and when they don't. And James just says, choose the right field of competition for you. Align your habits to your natural abilities. Sometimes our genes just can't be changed easily. So just work in favorable circumstances that fit with your personality. Exactly. You don't have to
1: apologize for the differences or feel guilty about them, but you do have to work with them. You can't fight genetics. And something I loved in this section is that he says, when you can't win by being better, you can win by being different. Yeah. By combining your skills, you reduce the level of competition, which makes it easier to stand out. So it might just be that you're good at a few things, and it's the combination that really sets you apart from a lot of people. I think a good example of this is the creator of Dilbert. He says, I was a pretty good writer, a pretty good artist, and a pretty good comedian. And if I had tried to pursue any of those individually, I wouldn't have stood out. But the fact that he was at the intersection of all three was really unique. That's a great example, yeah. Another tactic from this section is called the Goldilocks Rule. So he asks, how do we design habits that pull us in rather than habits that fade away? And scientists have been studying this for years, and although it's still a little bit murky, one of the very consistent findings is that you have to find this just manageable difficulty level. So the Goldilocks rule is that you have to find a just challenging enough point to keep you interested and to keep you motivated, but it can't be too hard just like it can't be too easy because you'll get bored.
0: Right. I love that he said the greatest threat to success is not failure, but boredom. That's why we need that little bit of challenge. Um, And he talks about getting into a flow state. So when we're working on a habit that maybe is related to when we feel that um, sense of creative or energetic flow, it tends to be just 4% beyond your current ability in terms of its challenge. And that brings us to the conclusion. So to recap
1: the four laws of behavioral change, make the cue obvious make the craving attractive, make the response easy, and make the reward satisfying.
0: And on the flip side, to change bad habits, make the cue invisible, make the craving unattractive, make the response difficult, and make the reward unsatisfying. And here's what it comes down to. Small habits don't add up, they compound.
1: The secret to getting results that last is to never stop making improvements. It's remarkable what you can build if you just don't stop. Before we share our final bookmarked activity, Em, how will
0: you carry this book with you in the future? Okay. So in addition to acting on the new habits that I've created and tracking them, I also love the idea of the annual review and integrity review that James talks about in the advanced tactics. Every year, well, for the past several years, I do an annual review already as the author described. So I look over my year, Uh, it's usually my journals, my calendars, and then I note what worked What didn't work in that year. And then I identify what I learned and want to do differently or focus on in the next year. And so I think it would also be a blast to tally my habits at that time from the whole previous year. I think that would be so incredibly satisfying. And then I also want to check in six months later as part of an integrity review. And that's to see how I'm living according to my values and those habits, and then to refine as needed. I think that would be a great way to ensure that I'm walking my walk, like really leveraging those atomic habits to change the course of my life and not just forgetting about this book after two months. And you can learn more about how to do either of these reports on your own in the show notes. I've also applied
1: a few of his four behavioral laws to some of my habits already. The most obvious one, I know this sounds silly, is that I wanted to make flossing easier I spent a lot of time on my flossing habits in this episode. <laughs> this is going to sound so dumb, but I had the cute little floss tridents in the bag that you buy them in. And even that was too much for me. And I noticed that my brilliant sister keeps them in a cup on her counter. So what I did was I found like a tiny shot glass and now I keep that in the cabinet so that it's almost impossible to ignore them. All I have to do is pick up a little trident, I don't even have to reach into the bag. I mean, this is obviously a silly tiny habit, but it really has helped because after I brush my teeth, I put the toothbrush down and it's just right there next to it. It's so easy, I can't avoid it. I think beyond that though, there were two really big aha moments for me. So that first was the early concept about changing your identity, not just the process. So that example from earlier is that you'd want to become a reader, not just read one book. So now I'm actively trying to use language differently about becoming the type of person who performs certain actions, rather than just doing the things. So that's something I'm trying to mentally change my language around. The second aha, though, was his commitment to never miss twice. This was such a big one for me. And in the past, I know I've definitely let perfectionism get to me and I'd give up if a streak was broken or if I couldn't do something like 100% all the way. So instead, now I want to focus on not missing the second day versus assuming I would never miss at all. And I'm hoping that'll help me stay on track with new habits I want to create or break.
0: Here's your bookmarked activity for the week. Okay, so we have two ideas for you. Idea one is to create a habit scorecard for yourself. We know that one of the greatest challenges of habit change is maintaining awareness of what we're doing. And when we've done something a thousand times, we miss things, whether good or bad. And the habit scorecard is a simple exercise to become more aware of your behavior. All you need to do is make a list of your daily habits and include every little detail. For example, wake up, turn on bedside table lamp, go to bathroom, wash face, etc. And then you review it and just note, is this a good, neutral, or bad habit? And you can assign a plus sign, an equal sign, and a negative sign to each. And if you're not sure, you can ask Does this habit help me become the type of person I want to be? And then beyond that, think about what new habits you might stack with your old habits to add positive habits or replace bad habits. Feel free to add temptation if it will help, like After I see a text alert on my phone, I will do five push ups. After I do five push ups, I will read my texts. Then, idea two is create a habit tracker. Once you have identified new
1: habits in your routine, decide which you want to track. Remember that third law of habit change. Make it easy. One habit is easier to track than 10. So start small. Then choose how you're going to track each one when you're done. A next step to this could be to commit to
0: doing it for one month and then reflect on your progress to see how you want to refine it from there. Thanks for joining us this week. To view the complete show notes and learn more about Atomic Habits, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash four. That's the number four. We've also included our top takeaways and the bookmarked activity for easy reference. Once
1: you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Tell us if you've started new habits or stopped bad habits by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929-515-BOOK. That's 929-515-BOOK or BOOK. Two
0: six six five. Lastly, we do have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, we hope you'll leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that great listeners like you enjoy our show, and that helps us expand our reach and search results.
1: Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of BookSmart. Until next time, happy reading.